bit freaked out by midterms, would you have a seat? The rest of you remain standing. I'd like you uh, to uh, seriously here uh, turn, and I don't want you to point a finger. I think in church you're supposed to do this. So I'd like you to just turn and find those people sitting because they, they're resting right now. I'd like you just to kind of point your hands to them and repeat after me, those that are standing very loud because ready yet, you're, you're doing well, okay? So point to them and say after me, put your hand out towards them. Repeat after me. No, repeat after me. You have the eye of the tiger, a fighter, <laughs> dancing through the fire, because you are a champion, and we're going to hear you roar. You will survive. Okay, thank you. Um, just a couple announcements. Uh, there is no awake tomorrow, so just don't show up. There is no foundations class on Thursday. Don't show up. But it is not too late for those of you that are staying around over this fall break to sign up for the Gospel and Racism Conference. Yes. Now, so here's the deal. You are all invited Thursday night. There's a, des a dessert reception here in the chapel. So you're all uh, invited to that. And then on Friday morning... On a Friday morning, the registration opens at 8 o'clock, and the program begins at 9 o'clock a.m. So if you're around, I would highly recommend that you be involved and come to this Gospel and Racism Conference. It's going to be awesome, all right? Uh, before we start and get Forrest up here sharing from the Word, let's take a moment and quiet our hearts and go to the Lord. Just take a minute. And in silence... Focus yourself a bit. Lord, we pray for the conflicts in this world. All of the disaster and craziness that's happening in Aleppo. North Korea, civil war in Libya, Sudan. We pray for conflicts here in our own states. Bring reconciliation between police forces and our African-American brothers and sisters. Help us understand this election season. Lord, be with conflicts in our families and with our friends. Bring hope. Heal marriages. Mend broken relationships. And Lord, help us to seek you first in everything we do. To see through the eyes of Jesus. And to believe that you really are the way and the truth and the life. And that we would have a passion and a conviction to share that with a hurting world. And now this morning, Lord, we ask that you would bless for us as he comes up to unpack the word of God with us this morning. May you use him as he speaks to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good. Yeah? All right. Excellent. Me too. It was so fun, right? I mean, just amazing, incredible singing, 
beautiful. It was just great. My family had fun there. We got to, got to go. My children loved it. We got a picture here with, with the librarian, Marion, also known as Emily. So the, in, in the Music Man, like any good story, there, there are scenes, there, there are setting, there's, there's a plot line, there are scenes within that, and there are characters, right? Main characters and more secondary characters in the story. And so in the Music Man, there's, there's the librarian, Marion kind of serious librarian, her little brother, the sad, lisping Winthrop, and then, of course, Professor Harold Hill, who the, the brilliant con man and traveling salesman who rolls into town and throws the town into an uproar. Those are some of the key characters in The Music Man. Well, today, when we come to our, our text, our story, it's a scene that gives us a glimpse in this one scene of a much bigger story that's going on. And, and in this scene of the story, there's some key characters. But before we get there, uh, I want to just remember where we are. Remember where we are. We're looking this, this semester at relationships with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Relationships with Jesus as Jesus brings and points to the year of the Lord's favor. Bringing good news to the poor and release to the captives and sight to the blind and freedom to the oppressed. This is what Jesus is doing. Right? And we are coming to continuing to look at that in all kinds of different ways. And we come now to Luke chapter 9. The place where we are in Luke 9, Peter has just made this incredible declaration. Jesus says, who, are, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah of God. The one who's come to set things right, to make things right again in the world. And then Jesus says, yes, you're right, but you think I'm going to be Messiah by force, but I'm actually going to be a, become a Messiah through suffering. I'm going to rescue this world and make God's kingship known by suffering. And then we come to our text. It's Luke 9, 28 through 35. It's going to be on the screen. If you would, let's read it together. Ready? Go. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to them. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Thank you. Well done. Good reading. What are the characters? Let's just quickly identify the characters in this, in this scene of the story. The characters, maybe in, in order of appearance. So first come onto the scene is Jesus, going up this mountain to mountain to pray. Jesus, the Messiah, right, that we've just identified just a little bit before this. Then we see the disciples, Peter, James, and John, normal people, following Jesus, learning from him, walking with him. Then we see a little subtle, little subtle but it's God, because Jesus comes up the mountain to pray. And we see it later more clearly, God the Father, the loving Father God, powerful, eternal, 
loving, living God, our character. We see then Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, arguably the two most important leaders in all of Israel's history. Israel, the people of God. So Moses and Elijah, they, they, represent, they represent to us Israel, the people of God. Remember how, how it worked out in the beginning when, when Adam and Eve said, God, we don't want to trust you. We're going to trust ourselves and set out this whole horrible, horrible chain of events that God's, ever since then, God has been working to bring about his redemption, redemption of the people, calling people back to God. And God tr- tried with Noah, kind of fresh start, didn't work so well. So then God said, I'm going to choose a family. And through this family, I'm going to bless the whole world. That family was, that person was Abraham and his family. And then he said, I'm going to make you, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to all nations. And then Israel springs up from Abraham over time. And, and God says about Israel in Isaiah that they will be a light to the nations, that, that they would make known who God is and what it's like to know God and be with God. So God's been doing this, and we see Moses and Elijah. They remind us of this because they're representing the people of Israel. Not only the people of Israel in general, but in particular, the law and the prophets. The law shows us how we, go, how we walk with God, how we live in covenant with God. The prophets pointed us back to God, the people of Israel. Okay, that's, that's that, that character. Then we have to see the Holy Spirit in the cloud that comes down on the mountain. The Holy Spirit that sh- comes down among them. And then finally, there's one more character in this story, or group of characters. It's a little subtle, but every story is actually really a dialogue. Every story is actually, there's a give and take. And so there's us, the listeners who are hearing this story. We're a part of it as well. Those are the characters. We're going to come back to those. But first, we need an engineering break. All right. Some of you know. Some of you have been wondering what's going on over here. Some of you know that I studied engineering, undergrad, uh, civil and mechanical engineering, and I'm a proud engineer. And I, yeah, you heard that right. And it's time, every once in a while, we need some engineering or some math or something in chapel. It gets a little boring without it. So today we built an arch. Thanks to Marcus Ong for helping make this happen. So an arch bridge works like this. You have a real solid foundation on the edges here. Those, those got to be strong. But then as it goes up and you have these wedges, You just put those up, put those up. Everything's fine. But the most important thing about an arch bridge is this one, the keystone. Can everyone say keystone? All right, this is the keystone. The keystone is the most important part. That's what holds it all together. Because then when the keystone's in place, the weight goes down like this incredible car up here. The weight goes down on that. And and instead of just crushing the bridge, the weight pushes out, pushes out because of the wedges, pushes out, pushes out, pushes out. And the force is now transferred down over here to the strong base. And that's how we have space to go under a bridge, right? No big deal. We're set. That's how arch bridge works. The thing about arch bridge, though, is that when, if you ever remove the keystone, don't do it. You'll see that this is truly an arch bridge because when you do it, it falls apart. Without the keystone, it can't stand. Come on, Jay, come run. The keystone holds it all together. So, when we think about, sorry, these guys are going to help me put it back together, put the pieces back together. And a bridge. <laughs> well done, boys. 
Jake, can we lower down a little bit? When you think about a, there you go. There it is. Without, <laughs> without, without the keystone, the bridge is worthless. Without the keystone, it all falls apart. But with the keystone, it's strong. With the keystone, you can drive your car across the top. You're in good shape. And those Roman aqueducts are still standing thousands of years later because they, had, they knew how to do it. The keystone holds it all together. All right, let's go back to our story. Back to those characters. In this story, this is one scene that gives us a glimpse. It's actually showing us a much bigger story. The big story of God's grand narrative of redemption. God's story that, we, that Moses and Elijah and the people of Israel points to. This big story, our little scene is showing us a whole bunch about that big story. And especially it's showing us who the keystone is. Who the keystone is. Let's just start looking at our story. So we go, we go up the mountain. They're going up the mountain, and Jesus all of a sudden gets glowing white. I remember he's just talked about how he's going to suffer and die. How he's going he's to be a suffering Messiah. And now he's clothed in white, glowing, dazzling white. He's helping him see. See, death's not going to have the last word about Jesus. Death's not going to end it for him. He's going to rise. He's going to have a new body, a glorified body, a heavenly body, and then he's going to come back one day in glory as well. See, Jesus, beginning this story, it's already, Jesus is going to die and rise. He is the center, the center. Then we see Jesus and Moses and Elijah all together, now all in glory, and they're speaking about Jesus' departure. Do you know what the word there is for departure? Exodus. Speaking about his exodus in Greek. That word would have provoked so much for the people of Israel. Like what's the, the, the main event, the place where God showed his redemptive power and love and his, how, that he's actually going to take care of God's people? It was the exodus. The exodus when God rescued a people from slavery against all odds, from a kingdom, an evil kingdom, that there's no way they were getting out. And he rescued them and took them across sure death across the Red Sea to life, to flourishing life, to a place of abundance and beauty and plenty for everyone and harmony. That's what happened in the Exodus. And so now Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about his Exodus, his Exodus that he is bringing about. See, because Jesus is going to go to a people who are in slavery. And he's going to take them out of slavery against all odds in a kingdom of darkness that's ruling them. And he's going to pull them out. He's going to actually pull them through death himself to life and flourishing through his death and resurrection. Take them to a place of abundance, a place where the year of the Lord's favor is known, where the least are become the greatest, where everyone has enough, where there's peace and harmony. This is what Jesus is doing. And who's doing it? It's him. As God brings this great exodus that the first exodus only points towards, Jesus, the keystone, is going to bring about the new exodus. Well, so then, it doesn't stop just there. Jesus goes, it goes on, and Peter, James, and John are, are wowed. They're not sure what to do. And Peter, in his great Peter boldness kind of bumbling way, let's build three tents. We'll just, uh, let's keep this. Let's keep this moment. We like this. So Peter's maybe a little foolish in that. But he also was on to something. 
He just shouldn't have suggested three. He should have suggested one tent. Because the tent, the tabernacle, reminds us again of this big story. There's a bigger story that Jesus fits into. The tabernacles where God would meet with his people and, and be with them. And they would come to, and, and learn and listen and be with him there. And now, Peter needed three tabernacles, just one, because only one place there God was dwelling in Jesus. It reminds us of John 1.14, right? The Word, the eternal Son, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He had His tent among us. God in a person came to us in Jesus, and God was made known in Jesus. There actually was a good idea to have a tabernacle. Jesus already was God's presence with them. Moses and Elijah being there also reminds us that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. It keeps pointing to the same center. There's one main character in the story. The law, fulfilled in Jesus. The prophets, Acts tells us, the prophets all pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the keystone of the whole big story of God's narrative of redemption. The Holy Spirit comes down like a cloud on Jesus, just like the Holy Spirit came on the tabernacle in Exodus 40 when they built that first tent. God's with us here. And then if there's any doubt at all, who's the center of the story? Who's holding together God's grand narrative of redemption? God, the Father, comes and speaks it really clearly. This is my Son, my chosen. Listen to Him. He's the point. He's the center of this big story. He's the one who holds it all together. So God's doing this amazing thing, this big story of rescuing people and calling people back to God, rescuing this world in love. And the story shows us how it's coming together in Jesus. But the amazing thing is it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. The story goes on. And the story goes on, and, and we see in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus kind of summarizes it for us. This is the story. These are my words, Jesus says to his disciples, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and rise from the dead on the third day. So Jesus is saying, hey, look, the whole, all the history, all the old stuff, all the law and the prophets, it all pointed to me. I'm the keystone. But then it doesn't stop there. The story goes on. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name, Jesus' name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I'm sending upon you what my Father promised so stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. The story doesn't end with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Because then, just at the beginning of, of the sequel to Luke and Acts, we see the Holy Spirit comes and clothes the disciples with power from on high to be God's witnesses, to point to this kingdom rule of God, to show in word and deed who Jesus is and what it means that he's the keystone See, the narrative goes on. The story goes on. In some ways, you could say the story 
started long ago with Adam and Eve and Abraham and the people of Israel and is held together in the keystone Jesus, but the story goes on. And by the Spirit, as we trust in Jesus, as we put our weight on Him, we actually, by the Spirit of God, are brought into this story. We're brought into it. God's saying, I, you come join me. Come join me in my redemptive work in this world, this big story of salvation that I'm doing, bringing life and hope, rescuing people out of kingdom of darkness and evil into a place of flourishing and life and abundance and closeness with God. Come join me. You come and come bring all your peeps with you. Come join me. This is what God's doing in this big story of salvation. And as we look at it, it doesn't always make sense, right? There are parts of the Old Testament that we don't understand. We don't get. How does that fit? How does that fit in God's great story of redemption? We don't know all the time. But we know Jesus. We know the center. We know the keystone. We look at our lives. Look at our world, war-torn, broken world, that our own lives, broken and shattered often. We don't always know how it works. How is that fitting into your great story of salvation, God? We're not sure all the time. But we know the center. We know Jesus who holds it all together, the one who came and lived and died and rose to pull us out and call us close to God and rescue this world and make things right again. We know the center. Whether it makes sense the old or the new, we know the center of the story, and we know we get to be a part of it. Band, you can come on up. Like Beck talked about last week, we get to live into it and trusting Jesus and then living out in word and deed, evangelism and service, living our life in Jesus in a way that joins in this beautiful narrative of salvation, knowing Jesus, the center. As we read our Bible and read those things, we're not sure of how they fit. We know, I, I know Jesus. I'm going to keep looking to him until that makes more sense. Because Jesus is the keystone. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is the one on whom we put our trust and it, through whom God will bring about his completed narrative of salvation one day with a new heaven and a new earth. Let's sing to that God.